Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Net Positive Podcast. A podcast which educates and inspires marketers, product managers, and companies in the best way to generate and optimize your flows. We're your hosts, Matt Brown and Jess Walker, and we will bring you the latest on how to improve your signup flow, increase your leads, and grow your business. Let's Let's jump jump in. in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Net Positive Podcast. On today's episode, we're lucky enough to have Dan Ross, who has spent more than a decade leading go-to-market teams at high-growth Silicon Valley companies. Most recently, Dan was the founding APAC Managing Director for Optimizely, creating a local team and building a multi-million dollar regional business from the ground up. Prior to that, Dan led several other global go-to-market and ops teams at companies ranging from 14 employees to 5,500 and they've collectively fundraised over $2 billion. Dan is also a mentor at Meru D and recently a venture partner at Black Nova Venture Capital. He has since taken his love of helping tech businesses grow to a full-time consultancy based in Sydney, Australia. Today, we discuss the importance of A-B testing, cohesive teams, and the no-code movement within marketing. Let's dive in. Okay, Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here. Thanks. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, look, we'd love to just learn a little bit more about your backstory. Um, Obviously, we just heard from Jess a little bit, but, you know, we want to hear from the horse's mouth. So please tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure thing. Uh, In spite of this very American accent, I am born here in Australia. Uh, I've spent most of my life in and around uh, San Francisco and Silicon Valley, uh, where I spent the past 10 years working at various uh, high growth B2B tech companies. Uh, Before that, did a little stint in government. and, uh, And in my spare time, I really enjoy being outside. And uh, not in an office staring at a screen. <laughs> yeah, um, Dan and I had a long conversation in a Zoom meeting once just about hiking. Yeah, I think there was like an important meeting happening and we were just like hiking, hiking, hiking. One of, yeah, one of us had said, oh, I was outside. And the other one was like, wait, what? <laughs> you like being outside? <laughs> I like being outside too. Uh, yeah, and I guess at those three or four tech companies, most of my jobs have been go-to-market strategy, operations, sales, marketing, customer success, and trying to make the revenue engine hum. I want to dive further into your role at Optimizely. So I think you were there for six years, was that correct? So what were you there for? What were your key KPIs, your challenges, and dive into that? I had two distinct roles during my time there. So for the first uh, three and a bit years, I was running our global go-to-market strategy. So Mm -hmm. that was how do we make marketing, sales, the channel, and customer success work nicely together? And that cut across things like internal technologies, MarTech, CRM, Gainsight, whatever, uh, also, you know, employing uh, headcounts and comp plans and which markets do we enter when and what verticals and how do we marry that up with the product strategy and vision. So um, I did that for a long time. And then I worked myself into a new job, which was the uh, initial managing director for Optimizely in Asia Pacific, mm-hmm. headquartered here in Australia. So uh, I got to uh, make the case, chart the course, create the strategy, and then go uh, live with my own decisions as I, <laughs> as I went and launched the market. And was that just to get back to Australia? Uh, it happened right around November 2016. So, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, A certain uh, presidential election. I had, I had always wanted to, to move back to Australia, but I also wanted to, after spending so many years um, behind the scenes and crafting the strategy, I did, I did, really want to own and be accountable to the results and the outcomes that I had spent so many years uh, orchestrating and facilitating. So it was good. It was good to have that level of ownership. And I was really fortunate that Optimizely trusted me to to make that leap. That's, that's really cool. Um, 
Having led the go-to-market strategy of Optimizely, how front of mind do you think experimentation and A-B testing is for growth leaders? In my time at Optimizely, I saw it evolve rapidly. So in early, in 2013, it was really a kind of growth hacker sort of thing. Like, oh my God, we can do these A-B tests and, and we can uh, find all this hidden revenue amongst our, our leads and our users. Uh, and over, over the subsequent four or five years, it really became something you heard at uh, marketing directors and leaders to CMOs to executives. And you can often hear it in the boardroom where you say, oh, we're running an experiment. And that's not necessarily a marketing tactic, but it's saying we've got a hypothesis about the direction of our business Mm -hmm. and we are going to find a way to test that hypothesis and learn from the result of that test, good or bad. So on the one hand, it also helps with company politics because it allows you to fail and takes away the stigma of uh, making a bad decision. But on the other hand, it also helps disseminate knowledge across the business really quickly and allows um, individuals to float ideas in a safe way. So yeah, that's great. Oh, very cool. Did you, did you use Optimizely at Optimizely? Yes, we did. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't, I didn't personally uh, as a, as a, I mean, I'm sure we'll talk about this a little bit later, but um, when you are talking about the end user experience and product functionality, mm-hmm. uh, you want to have a really clear sense of where you want to go, even if the mm-hmm. tactics and tests you're running along the way are going to vary a lot. Uh, but the great thing about using Optimizely at Optimizely is was we were able to surface ideas from around the business and, and test hypotheses and get them into you know, a normal development workflow to get them built and, and deployed and tested. And, so, and some of our most winning uh, tests were ones that came from like a customer success manager who wanted to change something, you know, in the knowledge base. And they might mm. save us several million dollars a year in Amazing. customer success costs because we've actually made it, uh, unbeknownst to us, too difficult to find some resource or something in the product workflow made sense to an engineer when they designed it two years ago. But for people who are in the field deploying it, they're saying, hey, maybe we actually could save our users some time in this way. So it's not always about marketing. It could also just be about the way your, your product or your business interacts with its customers. You're quite lucky with Optimizely that it was very team oriented, but mm-hmm. in previous to that, in your other, you know, other roles in your career, was it always like that? Or did you find there was a bit of a gap between the engineering and IT team versus the product marketing team? And did you have pain points there? Yeah. There's always, there's always that uh, tension, whether it's the, the product marketing team, the founders, the executives, mm-hmm. everyone has a especially when a product is dynamic and growing, everyone's got their own perspective as to what its unique Mm. value is, who should be using it in what way. Um, And, you know, there's, there's a natural translation exercise that happens between let's say a technical founder and the product that they design with the marketer who's then translating, okay, you've got this really cool thing and you think people can use it in this way. How do Mm. I translate that into language that potential buyers can understand and sometimes things get lost in translation. And then you have to enable a sales team if you're doing a direct sale mo- uh, motion. You have to enable a sales team to then talk about it on an individual level. And all three of those pillars have to stay in alignment, mm. um, which is really difficult as you're, you know, because your product development is continuous mm. and your competition also doesn't stay static and your customers are getting more mature as time goes on. And so their expectations from last year are now table stakes. And for everybody, and mm-hmm. you're working your way from those early adopters to the early majority and, and beyond. So, uh, it's it's a source of a lot of constant motion. Were there any tools <clears throat> or tactics you used apart from you know having those pods that would help solve that? So, when you work at a company that is new and growing, whether you're finding your first five million or your first fifty million, mm-hmm. 
everything's changing all the time. And that is a good thing generally. Uh, however, and there's a lot of great ideas and you hire top talent and they all, they're all bringing their A game and things are humming and it's, and it's looking great. However, there will be a point in that, you know, some people say it's around 150 people or some people say it's $20 million in revenue, uh, but there will be a point where you have to consciously decide to do less. And I used to have this as the first slide of nearly every deck for about two years uh, at my last job, which was this African proverb that Nelson Mandela said several times, which is, if you want to go fast, go alone. And if you want to go far, go together. And so one of the hardest things for a manager to do, especially when they have got a really smart employee who comes to them with a great idea, you know, in Silicon Valley, we love ownership and individual accountability and everyone's an entrepreneur and you want to say, yeah, go do that. That sounds awesome. (laughs) But then what happens is you end up with a team of 30 with 30 projects going simultaneously and they're all smart and they're all great, but the whole isn't moving at all. Mm. They're all going fast in the wrong direction. Yeah. Mm. In their, or their own direction uh, or in conflicting directions. And so um, to get back to your original question, this is, this is the challenge between marketers and uh, execs and product owners and sales teams is you have to, in a way, narrow your focus and decide to be really good for the short and medium term mm-hmm. on a on a predefined set of things that feels very dictatorial, feels very top down sometimes, especially to junior employees. But in my experience, I think most people would rather be a part of a really effective team that is moving together and collaborating effectively than a really ineffective team with a bunch of individual owners who aren't interacting well with one another. Um, and now, yeah. And I think I've been through three or four companies that have had to power through that mm. patch and have seen varying degrees of success. Yeah. And it is hard because when you do start a company, it's so exciting and like we could do this and this and this, mm. but you just, yeah, narrowing yeah. down. And that's part of the sales pitch is mm. you get, you know, you're, you're joint, you're going to work your ass off and you're going to get to do jobs and have responsibilities that you have no business doing at some big, firm, you, you know, you'd spend 10 years getting to the level where you could do something in six months at a, mm. at a startup. And that's great. And it's really enticing. But at some point you also have to say, we need to focus on what good looks like at an organizational level and what mastery looks like in a role. And that that's, that's a really tough one to do, especially when you're creating a market like we did at Optimizely, which was okay. We didn't invent AB testing and certainly not the scientific method, but to try to imbue those, um, cultural traits in a business, particularly a legacy business is really hard to do. And what that, and that evolved really rapidly over time. And so we had to not be all things to all people. And we had to decide we are going to specifically leave money on the table over here. Mm. We know there's opportunity that we're going to walk away from that for now so that we can be really good over here. And that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow. Sort of changing tact a little bit. When you think about the sign-up flow at Optimizely and sort of who owned the sign-up flow, you know, is that something that, that worked well for Optimizely and is that something you think would work well for other companies that, you know, we're, we're talking to on the line here? Yeah, it evolved a lot. Um, and in Optimizely's case, we made a, a, a pretty stark pivot away from a freemium, low-touch sign-up flow to a more enterprise B2B SaaS sign up experience. Why was that? I think it was because going back to my earlier point, we were, we had built a really great product that a lot of companies wanted to use. And, and once you get enough companies using it, they start asking things of you. And if you're talking about fortune 50 companies, 
with feature requests and little high growth startups with feature requests. Mm. Sometimes those don't complement each other and sometimes they're actually conflicting with one another. Right. So uh, we had, we had reached a point where we needed to focus our engineering resources and the decision was made to focus it on the enterprise because we thought we could have a greater impact there. One of the things we did really well was be relentless in our experimentation around uh, sign up channels, whether that's ad spend or content creation or what, whatnot, and and be really quick to iterate in that way and not be married to anything. I we had a guy um, I don't know if I can say his name. His name is Steve Eben, uh, and he ran our Google campaigns for a long time. And he, should we have Stevie on the podcast? Oh, if you want, if you want to have your <laughs> your uh, world rocked, he is he is a, a special kind of brain. This guy, he owned the Google budget. Uh, which for a while was not insignificant. And a lot of people, when they get a pie, they want to hold on to their pie and maybe expand it. But he was like, nope, this isn't working. I'm going to cut my own budget by half in some cases. Wow. I've, I've never heard of anyone wanting to Ever. cut their budget in half. <clears throat> Especially marketers. No offense. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, it, I think that sort of uh, spirit of experimentation and uh, was was across the company. And so Early on, we were trying to figure out what works for what and who are our buyers and who is signing up. And then once we zeroed in on the earliest causal indicator of lifetime value. So what is the one behavior or milestone once somebody does sign up that leads to them being a good customer for us in the long term? We had to define all that. Then it became really easy to pull out those handful of threads Mm -hmm. that led somebody to that point. And then we architected all of our signup flow and our messaging around that. And we had kind of two very good years of that humming. What sort of effort did it take to, you know, to obviously iterate and build on a signup flow like that? Because of our product and because it was a WYSIWYG editor at the time, it was quite easy for our non-technical marketers to architect different signup flows for uh, and test them. You know, there's the eternal debate of how much information do you capture when, what do you augment with uh, enrichment, how much friction do you create between somebody wanting to try the product versus, you know, learn more, whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And we, it was never static. And I think that's the, that's the assumption that a lot of people get wrong is you can get to a local maximum where you get it in a really, really good shape, but you can still revisit it later. And you need to create the systems internally and have the technology in place to be able to reiterate down the mm-hmm. track. So you can get it to a place where you're really happy with it. Fine. Put it aside for six months, maybe, but you should also be willing to re reassess those assumptions because the market changes. I mean, if you think about sign up cards versus web forms versus social logins, there's all these different ways that companies are using to get somebody through a sign up flow. And you can't really say what's best universally, certainly not for any given business. And so having that spirit of experimentation and be willing to try new things in different places is, is key. So you mentioned WYSIWYG there and, you know, obviously there's, there's a real push now in the industry to move to no code. And yeah. so I'd love to know, you know, from your thoughts in Silicon Valley and since coming back to Australia, where do you see the no code movement going and what role is it going to play in the industry longer term? I think no code is oh, no code or WYSIWYG of, as of five years ago uh, is only going to increase in importance. Um, one of the things that always frustrated me from being within Silicon Valley is like, we just need to teach more people to code. And I have several problems with that. One is not everyone is 
equipped to be a coder, myself, myself included. Uh, and two, we might reach a point where the code, we don't need as much code. Mm. Uh, and, you know, we might only be a decade or two away from code writing itself. Uh, if you listen to Ray Kurzweil. So, uh, I like the democratization of using technology, uh, to be able to start and operate a business. Mm. If your expert, if your expertise is in, let's say selling jewelry and you want to sell your jewelry online, you shouldn't have to be an expert in coding to sell your jewelry. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's sort of an artificial barrier. It's like, um, I just bought a house. So I'll use this as a metaphor. If I want to uh, have dishes for my new house, I can learn to do pottery <laughs> and I can go pull clay out of the earth and go make those plates myself. I think a lot of people have done that through COVID, by the way, there's, yeah, there's a lot of pottery experts right now. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's, maybe that's not the best example. Um, and, and then I can go and make those myself and then, and then I can have an Airbnb house uh, that I'm renting out. Or if I just want to be a good property manager, I can buy plates because that's not my core specialty. Yep. And so that was a really long way of saying, I think no code is here to stay. Mm. One thing I would say though, for medium and larger businesses is the other day I was on LinkedIn, this small rant, and I saw somebody post, here are the, um, the top technologies that every growth marketer needs to have. And it was like 35 pieces of tech. Oh my goodness. Most of them were some variation of no code that would allow a non-technical user to do marketing things. Uh, and, and I was, and they were all like, oh, these are all good. Yeah. Good piece of technology. I was like, wait a minute, 35. And when I joined Optimizely, we had over 130 pieces of technology, SaaS technology floating around the business in different dark corners. And so the one risk that you do have with these easy to deploy, no code solutions is you have to have somebody or somebody's thinking through the, the broader architecture. It doesn't need, they don't need to be writing code, but they at least have to understand, all right, where are the data? Mm. Where are the data moving? Uh, who is utilizing that data and is it right mm. uh, or close to right? So not definitely not knocking the tech at all, but it's, it's something that you can, you, if you're not paying attention to, you can see a bit of a proliferation. Yeah. I can imagine the, uh, the person who wrote that article is getting $500 per backlink or a percentage of affiliate. <laughs> yeah. It, 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 it was just like a little post from some, from some growth market. I was like, Oh, that's great. That's really thoughtful. Wait, wait, hold on a second. And I've also seen the same thing for like, here's your, here's like the best um, SaaS sales tools. And it's the same. It's 25, 30 pieces of tech. That's a lot to, to it's, manage. It's scary when your SaaS stack costs mm -hmm. more than your employees. So yeah, I, I, I probably can't share the, I know I can't share the actual amount, but it was a, we were spending a lot of money on a per employee basis on SaaS technology. And what, 30% was being used or something? I think they were all being used, but mm. there was a lot of duplication yeah. and, a, and a really a high degree of, or lack of coordination. Mm. It was just, yeah. I mean, we had like seven email tracking tools for salespeople oh and things like that. <laughs> yeah. And all, all these Gmail plugins and yeah. It was, the it was, brain is not equipped to handle it. No, no. And, uh, but it was fun. It was a fun sleuthing project when I first came in. I was like, so you're using this and you're using this and you're using this and you sit next to each other. That's a problem. We should, we should figure that out. <laughs> so obviously Optimizely is a marketing tool. Mm -hmm. So what are your top tips to selling to marketers? Don't. No, just, <laughs> just <laughs> Great. No, no. Thanks for coming. Bye. Uh, no, I, no, no, no. So I, I would say, um, so if you'd asked me that question a few years ago, I would have said there are online marketers and offline marketers, but that's less the case today. So when you're selling to marketers, I think what I'm seeing most is, is a lot of uncertainty around what to 
do. There are so many pieces of tech. Everyone's seen that chief MarTech mm, stack mm. of whatever it's up to now, 10,000 pieces yeah. of, of marketing tech. And I think um, in my experience, really savvy marketers appreciate focus mm-hmm. uh, and appreciate when a lightweight plugin tool can add value and when they may need to do something that's a little bit heavier and customizable. And from a sales perspective, it, it really degree, it requires a high degree of empathy. I've seen a lot of junior sellers come in with their latest and greatest marketing thing and they're talking about how it's going to disrupt and transform and whatever. Uh, but marketers now have been through the ringer and have had a couple of cycles of buying bad tech. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you can understand as a salesperson where your piece of technology fits within that individual marketer or marketing team's entire stack, mm-hmm. then you can say, oh, we actually will add value to these other tools that you're using and here's why, and these other workflows and the humans that are doing those workflows, and we can help them be more effective at their job, not just from a, a marketing performance metric. I think that um, is, I found to, to, to resonate a lot um, because it, every, every, every SaaS company is out there talking about their ROI and how they'll help with all these acquisition metrics and retention and whatnot. And everybody, everyone's going to save your business. But the reality is, no, if you can help somebody or a team of somebody's mm. do their job better mm-hmm. and not make their life harder by giving them something else they have to maintain, mm. uh, you're going to be indispensable. That's how you become unturnoffable. Love that, that. That's, that's really, really solid insight. You actually touched on another really um, interesting nugget there about, you know, when you look at the marketing tech stack and you, it's, it is 8,000 plus SaaS vendors that are targeting marketing of, you know, of course, Upflowy is one of those and, you know, definitely one of the unturnoffable ones. But, you know, when you, when you look at, um, you know, the marketing tech stack, the best marketing companies seem now to be, you know, understanding their niche really well, like doubling down on that niche and, you know, really understanding the customer journey and then, uh, and then playing really nicely with others. Like, do you see that as going to be, is, is, that, is that the way software is going to continue to go? Is it going to be niche down and play nicely or, you know, like, where do you see that going? Yes, I am a uh, fervent supporter of the build your own stack mentality. So uh, it's funny because the, the big mark marketing suites, the Adobe's, the Oracle's, the Salesforce's of the world uh, <clears throat> tried their, their very best to build a, a walled garden that you would never have to venture outside of. And they fought the open integration game for a long time. Uh, but that's just the, the breadth of capabilities that exist in the marketplace right now is just too great. And I think a lot of companies are moving away from that. Oh, I, I only have one vendor that I work with and they do everything and they tick all the boxes. So many businesses that I worked with were working with what might be a competitor of ours, whether it's Adobe or Oracle, but they realized, no, I need a best in breed solution for what I'm trying to achieve and where my business is at today. And the good news is having eight or 10,000 marketing technologies is that you can go and you can go and find that. It can be a little bit daunting, mm. But having a really clear focus on what are the capabilities and outcomes that we want to have, you can put together a combination of tools that have to play nice with one another. And if they don't, don't buy them. Um, you can go and assemble the perfect stack for you. And, uh, and so this is something that we did at Optimizely. I know Upflow is working on it as well, but you should always try to play nice with other existing tools and the world is too complex for you to be all things to all people. So you mm-hmm. just need to make sure that you're exceptional in the area that you claim to be exceptional. So you left Optimizely. When was that? August, 2019. 2019. And what have you been doing since then? 
I've been helping companies launch into the Asia Pacific market. I've been uh, consulting, doing helping go-to-market strategy for mm-hmm. a few companies uh, in Australia and the US. So where do you see the future on acquisition funnels from ad to product? And what about landing pages and sign-up flows? Where do you see all that going? I'll start with ad because I've, I've had some strong feelings about this lately and they, mm-hmm. may, not, they may not be rooted in, in my own data. But uh, it seems that the ad, I feel like the ad market and online ad industry is due for a shakeup. I think uh, it's hyperinflated and might, might be a little bit of a bubble. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've just, I've been reading some studies lately about work that eBay did when they were talking about branded ads and they turned them off as they were renegotiating with Google and uh, just, just to like create their own giant AB test. And they actually found that the branded ads were driving less than a percent of. Wow. And it's because if, if somebody's Googling eBay, they're looking for eBay. Right, they're not like you don't need to put an ad up there to get them to go to eBay. That's my mom going into Google trying to put the address in. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and I think that that is the is, is a kernel of, and you know, and if you factor in things like bots and the fact that you know ad viewability has gone down and you've got ad blockers, I, I think that whole side of the acquisition funnel is or acquisition landscape is going to, is due for a shakeup. Mm-hmm. As you move further through in terms of landing pages, cross device, um, I think historically, especially in medium and large businesses, each of those touch points was a distinct team. Mm-hmm. So you might have a marketing team owning a landing page and, a, and a, often an engineering team owning a mobile signup flow. Uh, I'm seeing a convergence in those specialties and and rightly so, because when someone's interacting with eBay or any other company, they're not interacting with the marketing team at eBay or the product team at eBay, they're interacting with eBay. And so I'm seeing in the teams that I'm talking to, there's just a much more um, interdisciplinary approach to that. And so a lot of the challenges that we faced in the last kind of five or 10 years around attribution and multi-touch uh, which was code for different departments fighting over who gets credit, uh, I think are, I'm hoping are going to sort of go by the wayside as these rigid silos that we had created start to start to break down. And we're just figuring out like, okay, how do we provide a better end to end experience? Um, because I'll keep using eBay example. It's a weird one, but it, it, our customers are, our prospects are our customers and our customers are also our prospects, right? The, there's no, there's rarely in most industries an overt, purchasing moment, and then they are forever um, a customer. There's repeat customers, there's upsell, there's cross-sell. And so you're always, you're marketing to your customers. And you might have somebody who's interacting with your help desk who you're also selling to at the same time. Mm. And so uh, it's the companies that I've seen do this really well don't view those as a individual department's responsibility. There are specialists, but then somebody is accountable for the broader um, relationship at a given phase. Mm-hmm. So with this evolution, you know, like as a hiring manager, you know, what's the core skill or the core trait that you're looking for, you know, in people to, to sort of adjust to this new way of business? Uh, ad- adaptability. It, sound, it sounds so cliche as it came out of my mouth, but... but I said it last <clears> time. <throat> I know. Oh, okay, let me think of another, <laughs> another <laughs> jargony word that I could use. Um, but, but, it's, but it's really true. We, companies are not profit maximizers. For-profit businesses are not profit maximizers. Humans individually are local profit maximizers. And what that means is you get departments who I want to do my very best, 
but my very best might mean that you're not doing your very best. We're on the same team. Mm. We're in the same business, but that sort of interdepartmental squabbling uh, has meant that companies haven't been able to maximize profits because they're, they're, they're solving that problem locally and not globally. And so I would look for somebody who's got a pretty high EQ and a pretty high IQ and a, and hopefully a low enough ego to realize that it, and, and then set up a company that, that rewards and incentivizes this sort of behavior. Um, and so that might mean you're going to put traditional KPIs for a certain department to the side in, in favor of a broader customer outcome. So instead of what's your, you know, your, your CPL or your CAC or your CAC to LTV ratio, uh, those are all things that individual teams will will maximize for that may not be in the greatest interest of the customer and the business long term. You, you've alluded, you know, really nicely to my next question, and you know, okay. what, what I really wanted to dive in here is, you know, you're stranded on a desert island and you've got one metric to survive. You know, what's what is the one metric? What's the one north star metric when you're thinking about marketing? If you had to focus on, like, what would you choose? What what would guide you? <sighs> a tough one. It is a tough one because. It's going to feed you. It's going to quench your thirst. <laughs> yeah. On this desert island. Yeah. Sunscreen. <laughs> so if you are a newly launching B2C company, it might just be getting names on lists or getting people into the product or the service. If you are a more complex enterprise B2B SaaS company, it, it might be what is the earliest value metric that is a leading indicator of lifetime value. But I guess they could both be the same, right? So in a B2C company, leading indicator of lifetime value might be, yeah, just get them to sign up for an enterprise SaaS company. It might be, what is the moment where we become unturnoffable? And what is the earliest moment that we become unturnoffable? And how do we orient ourselves towards that? So give you a specific example, uh, at Optimizely, after years of analysis, we found that when somebody reached their first winning experiment, so a statistically significant experiment with a positive result, mm. they had a significantly higher chance of renewing and upselling over time. And so we reoriented the entire business around getting people to that moment as quickly as possible. And then we actually found we were able to get it even earlier, which is not necessarily a winning experiment, but a statistically significant experiment. So even a loser, just validating or invalidating a hypothesis quickly designing a good experiment that will get to statistical significance. If we can get them to that moment, at least there's a light bulb, which is like, Hey, that thing you thought was going to be great was not great. How nice is it to know yeah, that instead great. of running down the wrong path. <laughs> and so we were able to reorient our marketing team and the content and the collateral and the marketing enablement that we were generating the sales team and their messaging and the way that they were setting up what an implementation and get started would look like our um, solution consultants that were implementing our customers. How do we, how do we do enough training to get them to that point and then do the continuing education after instead of trying to teach them everything up front and having these big, long implementation cycles? And then the same thing about customer success. Their metric was how many winning or statistically significant experiments have your customers run in the last in a rolling period of time? I can't share specific numbers, but our retention went from good to world class in a little over a year by just focusing on that across the business. What do you think the ratio is between failing and succeeding in A-B testing? So how many times do you fail to actually find that successful that works? It varies, though, mm. in published research. It's a world-class experimentation program with a lot of velocity is probably getting about a 30 to 40% win rate. Okay. That seems pretty good. Yeah. 
Mm. Um, many companies are worse than that. And that's because the ideation process is in the hypothesis generation process is not rigorous. Mm-hmm. So the idea of coming up or the process of coming up with ideas is actually really important to coming up with winning ideas or ideas that are going to at least teach you something. Uh, it's not a matter of like, oh, what if I just change this text? We developed these whole, whole methodology around starting with sort of outcomes and then goals and then leading indicators and then coming up with a hypothesis that might drive that outcome instead of, well, I wonder if I do this. There's value in that in just the coin toss experiment. But if you want to be world-class, like booking.com is running north of 10,000 experiments on their homepage a year. If you want to have that velocity to come up with those ideas, implement those ideas, implement those tests, learn from those tests, and then hard code winning results, or at least avoid losing results, that's, that's actually a lot of um, infrastructure that mm. you have behind the scenes and across the company. I remember some research from Stanford's D School, which talked about you needed thousands of great ideas to find one winning idea. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so like I, I completely back that up. Absolutely. Yeah. Amazing. All right. I think we could probably talk about this for hours and hours and hours, but I think we should probably wrap up soon. Yep. Maybe one final question. You know, you, you've got a young entrepreneur sitting, uh, listening to this podcast right now. You know, you've given a bunch of great advice already, but like what's the one thing that you would suggest to them is, is the number one takeaway they need to take to build a successful business? Focus drives execution. My old boss, Travis Bryant, used to say that to me all the time because I'm somebody who can often ch- chase the shiny penny. Uh, and <laughs> me as a, too. And yep. as a founder or a founding marketer, there are a lot of great ideas and things you should be doing and should be trying. And I don't want to dissuade you from doing that. However, focus drives execution. And it's often much harder to be exceptional at the simple things than it is to be average at the great things. It's not going to go in the book one day. It's not going to go in your, your loved medium post. Uh, but to really nail one core part of your business is hard work and requires a high degree of focus and humility. And uh, the hard thing about hard things, the hard thing about hard things. Yeah. Uh, love Ben Horowitz and uh, yeah. Focus drives execution. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dan, for coming course, in. Yeah. yeah. Awesome to have you here today. Pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Net Positive Podcast brought to you by Upflowy.